Welcome back to 24 Faithful. I'm your host, Bradley Adams. I'm joined today by Joel Wood. Joel, how's it going? Never been better, Bradley. That's good to hear. Uh, we're without Josh Rivers today. He is away, I think, on some sort of holiday. Um, I'm not quite sure where he is. Joel, you, you're you the expert on people's locations when they're not here, so I, I guess you can probably fill us in on that. Well, actually, I have been sending research teams out to, uh, to try to locate Josh, and uh, I saw him post little pictures on uh, on Facebook of his vacation, and it looks like to be surrounded by some sort of mountains. So I'm going with the Grand Canyon. Okay. Unfortunately, there's no cell reception out there, so I can't go look for him. Well, that's fine. You're here with us, um, and we're here today to talk a bit more about Season 4 of 24. So last week, I wasn't here, um, and Joel and Josh talked about Episodes 7 through 12, which is uh, 1 p.m. till 7 p.m. Season 4. So we're going to move it on to 13 through 18, 7 p.m. to 1 a.m. So the extent of it where we got to at the end of last week's section of episodes was that uh, Jack and CTU through taking down Henry Powell and Dina and Baruz Araz and Marianne Taylor. They tracked Habib Marwan and the Dobson override to the Rockland building. They stopped him. They stopped the remaining nuclear power plants from melting down. Um, but we learned that Marwan worked for McLennan Forrester, the company that built the override. He stole it from the company that he worked for under the alias Harris Barnes. And Jack and Paul Rains go to try and find information about the override. And while they're there, McLennan Forrester decide that they don't want them finding information that's going to incriminate them. And so they release an EMP. Uh, we end with Paul getting captured. Jack fails to stop the EMP. So there's an eight-mile radius where... There's a blackout now in central Los Angeles. Um, and yeah, that's where we pick it up. So um, it's an interesting episode, this one, actually, because we've talked a bit before about how Jack and Paul and the storyline with Audrey and, and all of that stuff becomes a little bit awkward. Sort of Paul's main existence in this show to, to this point has been as almost the third wheel to Jack and Audrey have this relationship. Yes, he's the husband, but he's on the outs. He's they're, they're separated. She wants a divorce. He's out of the picture. And then as we go through the next four or five episodes, there's that awkward interaction of he wants to be back with Audrey and it's all it's not ideal for everyone. Jack has to torture Paul and now they're working together. And now they're on the run together. They're, they're trying to avoid these McLean Forrester commandos and survive together. But as it, having sort of lived through the awkwardness that's not, I mean, we've, we've had so many worse things in, in previous seasons, but having lived through that, actually the way they interact in that first episode is really good. I think. Um, <clears throat> up until this point, I had been uh, really, 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 annoyed with Paul Reigns because Paul he's so like up until this point he was so like gullible and so annoying like he's constantly trying to get Audrey back Audrey has obviously shown that she's not interested and yet he still says I thought we were going to get back together like what would give you that idea Paul it's been how long did she say six nine months something like that yeah it's been six months and no progress at all had been made. So what, why, what, what would make you think we were getting back together? So it's just the annoying nature of it up until this point had just kind of 
rubbed me the wrong way. Up until this point, Paul was on my list of worst characters. <laughs> my um, my worst my worst characters of the entire series. After um, McLennan Forrester, or as McLennan Forrester was happening, I started to warm up to Paul a little bit. You know, he was starting he started to show some backbone. You know, he started to puff his chest out a little bit. So started I started to like Paul a little bit after that. Um, even though the stuff with him and Audrey was still cringeworthy, but the stuff with him and Jack was pretty good. But seeing Jack torture him and seeing Audrey, uh, you know, her reactions, it, it was kind of a, a culture shock for Audrey because, you know, Jack took the desk job to get out of the field. And up until this point, we are to assume that Audrey has really seen Jack in this sort of, uh, CTU mode. So that that dynamic, which started off very peaceful between Jack and Audrey, had now turned into where you started to see that maybe Audrey was having second thoughts. I mean, she still loved Jack, obviously, but seeing him today and seeing that he was a completely different person than the, the one that she met, you started to see, like, especially her talk with her father that she was starting to have some doubts and I thought that was an interesting uh, little wrinkle in the in the, the storyline but overall um, Paul Rains and McLennan Forrester and once they got to the hideout where they started to get to shoot out with all these commandos I thought that it was a fitting even though he technically didn't die until a couple episodes later I thought that this was a fitting way for him to go out to kind of make up for kind of the pettiness and the gullibleness, that's the word, of the way he acted in the first couple handfuls of episodes. Well, we'll talk more about next week when we uh, see that Audrey's perspective on Jack gets a whole lot darker <laughs> um, for reasons we will discuss next week. But just in terms of Paul, yeah. See, it's weird because James Frame who plays him, I think he's a really good actor. And yes. re-watching it a week or so ago, or maybe a couple of weeks ago now, the, the early episode, I think that first one particularly, he just seems so bratty and horrible. And you get the sense that, like, well, why are they giving someone of Frame's quality just the lines of complaining to Secretary <clears throat> Heller about how, oh, she told me that she's a big girl. Like it just it it didn't work at all, and then we actually come to this now with Jack, and it's completely out of Paul Rain's comfort zone. He is, um, what is he? He's an accountant, I guess. He, he runs some sort of company, some sort of like CEO thing, right? He's he's in yeah, that kind like of industry, some some kind of defense contractors or something like that. Yeah. So being in the middle of a firefight, having being tortured, that the torture scene, by the way, is brutal. The way that it sort of they break his hand, they break his fingers in the desk. Horrible to watch. Yeah. But being in this sort of situation is not really in his comfort zone. And yet somehow this is where the show has made Paul look the most at home. If that makes sense. It doesn't, you, you can tell instantly that he doesn't want to be there. Obviously he's, he's scared. He says to Jack that he can't do it with, from his injuries and he's going to have to. And, uh, but he handles the gun well. He's handling the situation fairly well. He has the presence of mind in, in the bridge in between episodes of what we didn't see at the end of the previous episode to hide the document because he thought he might be captured. 
he knows where it is. He can do all these things. He, he seems resourceful. He seems like the kind of guy who actually fits into this situation, even if he doesn't quite fit into this situation. You can see he, that he's the outlier here. But it works. And, and like you say, I think like was, you know, it's not his death here. But in terms of he pushes Jack out the way, he gets shot. <laughs> One of the, the weird quirks of 24, and, and something I'll talk about a lot next week, um, season four, that they sort of aren't really sure of how many times he gets shot. He gets shot once in the actual episode and then thereafter in the previously and actually in terms of the surgery and the prognosis and everything, he's been shot twice. Uh, so they did really well there. But having, having talked through with Jack and, and that really nice conversation they have at the, 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 the weapons store and the fact that he does end up saving Jack's life, it, it's a really good little arc for him within that space of a couple of episodes to go from the jealous ex-husband who is still going to try and fight to be the actual husband and push Jack out of the way to then literally pushing Jack out of the way, but to help Jack. It, it's a weird, it's really weird. And it's not, it's not a scenario that 24, I don't think it does it ever again. Anything like this, you know, when we come to season six, especially we'll talk about a lot of things that they do repeat but a situation like this isn't something they ever do again, but it worked here. Yeah, it it was kind of a quick, um, I guess, full circle moment uh, for Jack and Paul um, because they were so adversarial, especially once Paul realized that Jack was the one that Audrey was, was seeing. Um and then to kind of go full circle to um, Jack basically saving Paul and then Paul's returning the favor. Um, it was kind of a, a, a quick full circle moment. And like I said earlier, it was, it was a fitting way for him to go out because it's kind of a last stand kind of thing. It was Paul making up for... And I don't, I don't think it was just making up for the way he treated Jack, but I think it was, it was also Paul's sort of way of making up for all the things that, because I mean, we never really got too much background on what ended his relationship with Audrey. So I think it was also his way of kind of making up for the fact that that relationship was over. And he knew <clears throat> that she was seeing Jack and that she wanted to be with Jack. So I guess metaphorically speaking, you know, him kind of uh, pushing Jack out of the way of that bullet was kind of pushing himself out of the way with Audrey, if you want to look at it that way. But the way Jack was kind of torn because one thing we learned throughout 24 is Jack's word means more to him than just about anything. When Jack says it several times throughout the series that I give you my word, so to him, you know, his word is kind of his bond kind of thing. And if he gave, when, when he was on the phone with Audrey, as him and uh, Paul recorded McLennan Forrester, he gave Audrey his word <laughs> that he would take care of Paul. Because as she said, Paul's not like him. So he kind of, so he gave his word to her that he was going to take care of Paul. And for 95% of the time they were gone, he kept Paul alive. <laughs> but then it was that 
but then it's the moment where you think everything is fine, <clears throat> where you think that everybody's been taken down, the scene has been secured, and, you know, everything's great. And then out of nowhere, boom, a bullet or two, depending on which episode you watch, <laughs> pierces Paul Reigns. And in that one moment, not only is Paul fighting for his life, but Jack just lied to Audrey. So now he has to explain to Audrey why he wasn't able to keep his word. And I think knowing how he feels about Audrey, I think that was probably as much, if not harder uh, for him than uh, watching Paul get shot. So all of this comes about from Jack's, I was going to say his most insane plan into drawing a bunch of armed commandos into a shootout. Completely so pick them up, Right. But yeah, somehow 20 minutes later, he comes up with an even more insane plan, which is that he's going to pose as Dean as hostage to go to Joseph Fayed's house so that they can get to Marwan. I mean, it's a good plan. It, it almost works, but it is, it's completely mad. I mean, what is Jack, Jack is completely insane. He, he is, but it, then again, it's also completely within, it's the most Jack Bauer thing that he would possibly do. Because Jack obviously is not going to ask anybody else to do it. You know, Jack is Jack will if Jack is willing to take on a bunch of commandos virtually by himself, you know, this is kind of in the realm of possibility for him. Because he knows that Dina is the only one that can get this done. But at the same time, he knows that it's it's possible it could be a suicide mission. So there's no way he's going to ask anybody else to do it but him. That's just, I mean, if there's one thing we've learned about Jack over the previous three seasons is that, you know, if there's anything that could possibly lead to, to death, Jack's going to volunteer for it. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> you could always have the perspective that he doesn't need to have the hostage, but it does sell everything. It does get Dina within talking distance of Fayette and then to Merwan. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a crazy plan to offer himself up, essentially, to Merwan knowing full well that he could probably be killed. And again, if it's one of those like plot armor moments where if it's not Jack Bauer, Marwan probably kills him instantly, regardless of how successful it is. Um, whether that leads to the takedown of Marwan, who knows? But anyway, um, how do we feel about this? Because sort of from the moment, I, I like the Dina Baru's final conversation um, and I like the sting, how it works. But then sort of the next episode, the actually the exchange stuff is actively filler. We talked before about how there are episodes where it feels like we're just getting from point A to point B. It was particularly apparent in the stuff at the, the gas station where Jack robbed it, where they were trying to reposition the satellite earlier in the season. This one is one of those ones, I can't remember which episode it was we talked about, I think in season three, where we know this is filler. Marwan is intentionally saying this is filler. He just needs to distract CTU from knowing about the missing airplane pilot and his family. So... Let's give them a trade, Jack from Baruse. Let's distract them. So we know full well going into this episode, and the other thing actually before we come into it in a bit, that we know three hours before it happens that Air Force One is going to be shot down or they're going after Air Force One. So we kind of, we know what's come before this. We know what Marlon's doing, why he's doing it, and what comes next. So it's kind of weird watching the exchange episode, sort of knowing, well, nothing in this really has a whole lot of significance beyond delaying 
but yet it still kind of works because it, it's not un- unlike the satellite that we talked about before it doesn't feel like the show is wasting time it feels like this is part of the plan almost if that makes sense probably doesn't make sense well one one thing about 24 is that when you're filming 24 episodes a season every season there's bound to be and this is with any show there's bound to be you know a few episodes whether it be in the beginning in the middle or toward the end that just seem to be put together just to fill up the episode count they seem to be they connect to the overall story but you could probably take them out of the episode count and the story will probably flow just just the same. Um, there are episodes that I don't think would be crucial to connecting the dots, so to speak. Um, with the exchange of Jack and, and, and Beirut, it, it seemed kind of weird at first that Marwan was so interested in Beirut um, <clears throat> because, I mean, he's, he's a kid. You know, he's going to put a bullet in him as soon as he gets him. So, I mean, it, it kind of, you know, there was nothing Beirut could have done that could have jeopardized Marwan's plan um, in the grand scheme of things. So <clears throat> it was kind of weird that he seemed like he wanted Beirut so bad. But then again, one thing we've learned about Marwan up until this point is he always has a backup plan for whatever he's trying to execute. Um, <clears throat> like the the override, the override was always his end game, but he always had a backup plan for that. Like if the override fell through, he had another he had another plan already in motion. And this, he knew that Jack, <clears throat> especially since he had already met Jack, because Jack was chasing after him and tried to kill him, so he already knows what Jack looks like. So the fact that he had Jack there with him. He knew that he basically, the the one person that's foiled most of his plans the whole day is within his grasp. So he knows if he has Jack there, that makes it less likely that they would stop what he has planned with Air Force One and the pilot. Because Jack has been the main one throughout the day foiling him at every turn. So exchanging Jack for Beirut was a means to an end because he wanted to get rid of Beirut. But at the same time, the longer that he has Jack with him, the less likely CTU is of stopping his plans with Air Force One, because he knows that Jack is the main one that is the main one in his way, so to speak. So I thought I thought it connected to the story in that sense. Um, but in the overall scheme of things, I think you probably could have taken that episode out of the episode count. And it probably wouldn't have hurt the story very much. It's all unintentionally funny, actually, because Tony, when they're having discussions about, okay, are we going to do this trade? And Tony sort of pitches two reasons to Bill Buchanan about why would Marwan want Aruz? One, there's a potential family connection that they didn't know about. And two, he has information that will help hurt Marwan. Neither of those things are true. It is literally just a distraction. So obviously we know that. So it's kind of, comedic to just watch tony and, and ct sort of struggle well why do they why does he want Belarus? What, what could he possibly what use could he have therefore is he useful to us maybe and jack has the same suggestion i think he says to to marwan about how if if he's useful to you he's useful to them he'll never give they'll never give him up and they're all kind of missing the point which is the aim 
the exchange kind of succeeds in the plan. It's kind of a little bit of Edgar's fault. We'll talk about Edgar in a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it works for Marwan. It, it's a it's a weird episode, but it, on the whole, I kind of like it. I, I like the Jack and Marwan interactions. I think actually putting them in a room together for the first time, really. They they obviously had the... Jack was chasing him at um, at the Rockham building, but <coughs> this is the first time they've actually had a conversation. And it works. I think it's nice to actually see, for the first time, obviously we saw, we saw it with Saunders, we saw it with Drazen, when you put Jack in a room with his nemesis for the season, it actually works out quite nicely. They they have a good rapport. Arnold Vosloo is, is great. I, I like it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always... And first of all, can I just... Can I just say how awesome Bill Buchanan is? Like, James P. Morrison is one of my favorite actors of the entire series. Other than uh, Jack and Tony, Bill is probably my favorite character throughout the entire series. Um, so I was, I, I knew he came in as season four, but I wasn't sure which episode. So when I actually saw him come in, I was like, yes, now we got Bill Buchanan. Now we got a, a CTU director that's not going to die within the first couple of episodes. So now that we get that out of the way, the build-up to the first meeting between Jack and Marwan, it's always, they always build up the suspense. But if you'll, but if you'll notice, the, the initial meeting between him and the, and the villain for the season never really goes according to plan. There's always something that happens that Jack doesn't prepare for. I guess I guess you could say, but it was just as important for Marwan because of all the villains through the first four seasons, three and a half seasons, of all the other villains, I think Marwan was the most <clears throat> persistent as far as you know the other villains. They had a they had a goal in mind, and Jack, either directly or indirectly, played a part in it. Marwan didn't need Jack for his his goal he didn't he just wanted jack out of the way because jack was a nuisance to him so i think when so that's why i said marwan having jack with him to him anyway meant that nothing else could go wrong because the main person that's been a nuisance to me all day is here in my is here in my possession so in that respect like you look at his, at his interactions with uh, with Stephen, and it, or his first interaction with Stephen, and the Drazens, and uh, drawing a blank here, Bradley. Who's the main villain of season two? Ed Ali. Okay, so Ed Ali. The 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 first interactions, Jack is kind of in control, you know, for the for the for the most part. Um, he has he controls his own actions. Um, even the even the Drazens in season one, when they asked him to, you know, what to do and stuff like that, he already had a plan of what he was going to do. Now, whether he was able to carry out that plan was a different story. But Jack was kind of in control of his own actions, season one, season two, season three, especially in season three when he threatened to kill Stephen's daughter. But <laughs> season four, Marwan is kind of in control when they meet. Um, I mean, if you count, if you don't count, you know, in the McLennan Forrester building when they're chasing Marwan out of the building, but when they're actually face to face and talking, Marwan's kind of in control, and that's something that Jack is probably not used to. 
Um, so I think it's an interesting dynamic to because one one of the negatives through the first three seasons is it had started to become formulaic in the sense um, in that you knew that half or a little over half the season Jack would be chasing the villain. Um, you knew that eventually he was going to catch the villain and then he was going to get what he needed to get out of the villain before saving the day. Pretty much cut and dry. But by season four, they did a good job of making Jack feel kind of vulnerable. Like you don't know what's really going to happen. For somebody watching the season for the first time, you don't know really what's going to happen because Jack is in a, Jack is in one of his very few interactions where he doesn't control the environment around him. And Jack is, Jack is very meticulous because he, he always wants to control the environment around him. He always wants to know what his next move is going to be. He always wants to be able to control actions and, and his surroundings. And when Marwan had him, he was not able to control those surroundings. And I think that was kind of a, kind of an interesting new dynamic to Jack that we hadn't really seen that much in the first three seasons. The thing for me that sort of makes Marwan such a good villain is that the, the villains we talked about in previous seasons, the Drazens, Syed Ali, and, and by extension sort of Peter Kingsley and Max, Stephen Saunders in season three, they all had objectives that were very easy to quantify. The Drazens wanted to kill Palmer and Jack. Syed Ali wanted to detonate a nuclear bomb. Max and Peter Kingsley wanted the bomb to go off so that they can control their oil interests. Stephen Saunders wanted to unleash a virus. For me, the reason that Marmon works is because he doesn't have a particular target. He's not got that one sort of one big threat. We've got to stop the threat. Now, what you've got to do is you've got to stop Marwan. Marwan has this ideological approach, and we see that, and we'll talk a little bit about this next week, I think, but he wants to strike fear at the heart of America. He wants to prevent Americans from feeling safe. He wants to inflict upon them the same sort of feelings of fear and terror and all of this that people in the Middle East feel because of American interactions. So he kidnaps the secretary and his daughter. He takes control of the nuclear power plants. He shoots down Air Force One. He unleashes a nuclear missile. All of these things are not because he wants to do a specific damage. It's because he wants to ruin America. So that's, that's for me, is, is why he works. And say, the, the, big, the big part of this ends up being what we see next in that he wants to shoot down Air Force One, and he succeeds in that through Mitch Anderson. I think that actually the episode where it happens, this 10 to 11 p.m. hour, is the best of the season. It is just sort of from start to finish. Again, the fact that we know that it's coming, and then Jack gets teased of it, and we know that Jack's racing against the clock. He knows he's racing against the clock, but not really why. We get to see it from both sides. We get to see Mitch Anderson panicking, not panicking, but sort of worried about what is his cover in place? Is he going to be okay? We get to see it from sort of Keeler's completely, I don't know what's going to happen angle. He's completely in the dark. Jack doesn't know what's going to happen. CTU doesn't know what's going to happen. But there's a real, there's a real tension to it. It's that thing again that I mentioned about Hitchcock two weeks ago that we know, this time we know what the bomb is. We know which table it's going to go off under. So we have all this time of complete, ten- of complete tension, complete suspense to build up. And we get to that, I mean, the final sequence of this episode of Jack sort of driving in his car, it's the most mundane thing. But Jack's driving in his car and we know that 
Mitch Anderson's flying the plane and they have the, the sort of, how are we going to stop him? Are we going to land Air Force One? Keeler passing the reins over to Logan. It, it's just so sublime. I absolutely adore that episode. And I adore the, the whole premise of, of this plot. Was Air Force One just hit? <laughs> Favorite line of the entire season. So good. And, and it was just so it was so cheesy, but at the same time, it was my favorite line of the entire season. I actually, it had been a while since I had watched season four from like beginning to end. So up until this point, I did not remember that Keeler actually was present through as much of the season as he was. Like I, when I think of all the presidents throughout 24, I always think of Keeler as kind of a, a footnote. Like he not really prominent um, as far as the presidents go. When I think of all the presidents, Keeler's pretty much at the bottom of the list. Mostly because I didn't remember that he was in as many episodes as he was. Um, so, he's, so he's in, I think he's in a total of about 19 episodes when you include his season three appearance and his season four appearances. There are a handful of episodes he doesn't appear in in season four. The thing for me is that you get to within half an hour of his incapacitation. We don't actually end up knowing whether he lives or dies, even in the aftermath, he's alive in the wreckage at the end of in, in the next episode when they find him. Um, and we never find out beyond season four what happens to him. The thing for me is the fact that we go these sort of 18, 19 episodes of him and this whole stretch of episodes on season four where he's president and it's half an hour before his near death that we learn he has a son. We didn't know this at any stage before. It's not even this is the first time we meet the son. This is the first time we know that he even has a son. Which is just, it's incredible. It, it kind of it reminds me of, of George Mason. Like, he was in all of season one. You know, we, we'd seen him do a handful of episodes in season one. Um, we'd seen him do a handful of episodes in season two. But it wasn't until, you know, we knew that he was going to die in a couple of hours that he finally got to talk to his son. Like, up until that point, I didn't know he had one. Um, so I think I think it, they could have done a lot to because up until that point I think even though Keeler may have been a good president and they started to kind of rebuild him in season four, the Keeler that we saw in season three was not a likable character. If you if you look at the 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 shots that he was taking at Palmer during the debates and the fact that he uh, basically conspired with Sherry to get uh, David Palmer to resign. Um, Keeler in, 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 in season three was not a likable character. So I think they tried to rebuild that in season four with uh, the scenes that he was in, the ones that he was actually talking in. But I think they could have brought his son in earlier, like maybe the start of season four. Um, but then again, that probably would have conflicted as far as story goes with Heller meeting his, seeing his son. So it probably would have been kind of, you know, two of the same stories going on at one time. So I can see why they may not have done that. Um, but I still thought that they could have brought him in a little bit earlier because it would have done a lot to kind of humanize Keeler and make it to where, because his incapacitation, while it was, it was tragic because the president and Air Force One got hit. But, but as far as a character goes, I don't think we would have 
been that upset if he would have died because of the fact that they didn't do enough to get us to kind of care about the Keeler character. And I don't know if that's because they knew that he wasn't going to last a full season or what the reasoning was, but bringing his son in 30 minutes before his plane goes down um, kind of, you know, it, it, it boosts him up a little bit to where we feel a little bit when the plane goes down, but it doesn't do enough to make us really care one way or another whether he survives it or doesn't. And I thought that that was one of the missteps because that's why I say he was kind of on a footnote of all the presidents because he was the one, the one president that they did the least amount of work as far as getting us to invest in the character. <clears throat> He's the only president, if you remove his stuff from the season, you don't lose... Well, you, in terms of time, you don't lose a whole lot. But in terms of actual story, you don't lose a whole lot either. He exists almost exclusively on the other end of a phone call to CTU, to Hella, to Jack, to whoever. So it, you can just take him out and it doesn't really matter. And you are right. Like When he gets shot down, whether or not he lives or dies, who cares? The whole... It kind of it does kind of work in the episode's favor because you do have it is very much geared towards that shock factor and that line from Jack of where was Air Force One just hit. The point is not necessarily for us to be sad about the fact that Keeler's been shot down. It's the shock and the horror and the isn't Marwan terrible sort of angle of he's just shot down Air Force One. He just potentially killed the president. That's the big thing you've got to take away from it. But you look at all the other attempts um, on Palmer at the end of season two. Uh, Wayne Palmer in season six, even even Henry Taylor, the first gentleman in season seven, all of these things, when they happen, you care about it and you kind of you're worried about the character. With this, there isn't there isn't that. Yes, you are right that season three doesn't do a whole lot to make us like Keeler's character, and season four doesn't really spend enough time trying to pull us back up from that. But even even putting that aside, that you just don't feel any sort of connection to him because we haven't spent enough time with him. You get to 16 episodes in, and I mean, he doesn't even appear in every episode this season. He is in two minutes here and there, and then you forget about him for two hours, and he comes back and says some more presidential stuff. He he seems like a really good president. That's the thing. He seems like he's well in control. Uh, When he has to make the phone call to Logan and say that they might get shot down when he has to come back his son and everything, that final sequence, he seems very presidential. He seems calm. He seems in control, even in the most horrific worst circumstance he seems very level-headed so actually as a president he's he, he's good i think but we don't spend enough time for him to, for me to be sure that's that's the thing he <clears throat> as far as presidents go he seems very <clears throat> sure of himself <clears throat> even in ways that president palmer wasn't um he seems very sure of his actions um he seems like if they would have spent time like maybe a season or two um, in his investment of his character. I think he could have he could have probably been, aside from Palmer, he probably could have been the best president of the series. Had they spent, had they spent any time investing in <clears throat> flushing out his character? Um, because there was, a, there was a lot of things over the, over the three seasons that they flushed out from David Palmer's character. Little things that you that you found out. They didn't really spend time other than, like you said, the last 30 minutes when we found out he had a son. 
other than that, there wasn't really anything about his character that we knew. Um, and I think it's like you said, the only times we really saw him is when he was on the conference call with CTU, when they was giving him a breakdown of where they were at. Um, you know, a couple of scenes here and there where he was debating whether to, <clears throat> whether to take out the building that Heller was being held captive in. You know, other other than that, there was not really too much one-on-one time with Keeler. And that's what I think was missing from his presidency that you saw in pretty much every other presidency, even even Wayne Palmer in season six. Um, even though I wasn't a fan of his presidency either, he, at least they tried to flush out aspects of his character, such as him trying to live up to his brother's legacy and, you know, things like that. <clears throat> we never really got anything with Keeler's character to invest in for us to grab onto and say, you know, I'm going to miss that part of his character because even though he was very presidential and I thought if they would have given him maybe one more season, you know, I think he would have turned into a character that we kind of invested in and we kind of liked a little bit, but I just don't think there was enough time because like you said, in, in season four, he was in, he was in what, 15 episodes, maybe, maybe a little less. Less. Like yeah, he doesn't appear in every episode. Okay, yeah, maybe maybe a couple handfuls of episodes, but other than that, there was really nothing, and he was in the plane the entire time, so there was really nothing for us to invest in. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's not great, but we did get a did great episode out of it. Did he have a first lady? I, I don't think I remember seeing her. No, I got the well, I got the impression based on the interactions he had with Sherry at the end of season three, that he's not married. Based on based on how Sherry's thing was whole, well, you want a, a mid-level staff position on my, on my, in my presidency. Well, it'll be a little bit more than that, John. So I get the impression <laughs> from that that he's not married. Um, okay. But yeah, not really well fleshed out in this season, sadly, but we do get a great episode out of it. We get a wonderful sequence and possibly my favourite music score of the entire show comes in that uh, that final sequence from Mitch Anderson. So, you know, we you win some, you lose some. So I'll I'll take what we got. Uh, but the end result of the Keeler assassination attempt is that Marvel wants to use it as a two-pronged approach. He wants to take down the president, but he also wants to get hold of the nuclear football to unleash the next wave of his attack, which is seal a nuclear warhead and use it to wreak even more havoc on America. Uh, so we do end up getting sort of this whole episode of these two camping, this, this camping couple, uh, Jason and Kelly Gerard, who stumble upon the nuclear football and then have to run away from Marwan. It, it's it's one of the more uh, left field things I think Twenty Four does in terms of for one episode these two are the most important characters in it, and Jack comes in and helps them. But in terms of the, the larger story and, and the good versus evil side of, of CTU versus Marwan, that sort of thing, they end up becoming the most important thing, not CTU, not Marwan himself. It's these two random people who we've never seen before and we'll never see again. But, but it, I, I think it's a really enjoyable episode, actually. It's a pretty good episode. But 24, you'll notice throughout the, the other three seasons is 
they always seem to pluck these random characters out of out of their cast list that are not important characters by any means, but they give them these little arcs in the overall story that they're kind of important for those five or six minutes or 10 minutes, but then you never hear from them again. And the nuclear football, which by the way, I consider myself a historical junkie. Um, but before I watched season four, the first time, never heard of a nuclear football, <laughs> never, never knew what it was. I mean, is it an actual football or I mean, I've never, never heard of it before watching season four of 24. They couldn't throw that in a, on a football field. It's a briefcase. <laughs> that's, that's what I said. When they, when they said nuclear football, I was like, is it an actual football? Or, you well, know, why, why do they call it? it? Was. Imagine <laughs> if it was. I mean, imagine if 24 had just been like, well, we know it's an actual briefcase. We know it's sort of a control board and a little, a little book. But yeah, what, what if we actually put it... What if, what if our big thing for Keelan, his personality, was that he really likes football? And so he decided that he wanted the nuclear football to be in a briefcase in the shape of a football, like a little bag. <laughs> it, it could be one of those things where, you know, the, the, the football and you got the little lines on it and then you press one of those lines in the middle of the football just opens up. <laughs> it's got all these, <laughs> it's got all these codes inside of it that you just pick out. Oh, this is a, this is a, the, the bomb sock China, you know, this, you know, it's, 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 it's weird, but at the same time, I don't know why they call it the nuclear football because it's not a football. So to me, it's like false advertising, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does provide for the story. And you kind of, you kind of wonder <clears throat> through all the, throughout the entire season, because this, this plan with, with Mitch Anderson and bombing air force one, the nuclear football, it seems kind of well thought out by Marwan. So you kind of wonder you kind of start to wonder at that point, was the override truly the end game? Or was it just part of his overall uh, story? Was it part of his overall plan? And then you start to realize later on in the, in the season, especially <clears throat> as he starts to put this plan into motion, that you know everybody at CTU thought that Marwan's endgame was the override. They had assumed that the override was what everything on that day was leading up to. And now that they had foiled that plan, then he was looking at other options. When in reality, he had already had those options laid out the entire time. The override was just, I guess you could call it plan A of his overall scheme. But this this was not just about as we as we learn you know as we get into the middle of the season, it wasn't just about melting down a bunch of reactors. <clears throat> this was this was about a larger scale attack that had multiple layers to it, which is which is another reason why I like Marwan better than season one, two, and three villains. Because even though they had very elaborate plans and they always had backup plans, and especially Steven Saunders, always had backup plans in case those plans didn't work, um, Marwan kind of, he had this whole layered approach through multiple facets, multiple sections, and multiple targets 
that he had this whole this whole day laid out to where he was going to basically carry out several different plans and cripple several different divisions of the country. And I thought that's what made him a little bit, well, not a little bit, made him a lot different than other villains because they all, they had like one singular target, even Saunders, the 11 vials, 11 different locations, but it was still one plan that he was carrying out. The Drazens had one target. Syed Ali, one target. Marwan, multiple targets, multiple layers, multiple plans. So I thought that's what probably made him the smartest villain that Jacket had, had encountered up until that point. Kingsley, one target. So just sort of put it in the Stephen Saunders mold. He would, Saunders would look at Marwan's thing as he had the phases to his plan. That's how Stephen Saunders like to look at it. This is this is how we can look at it with Marwan. That phase one was the train bombing. Phase two was the kidnapping. Phase three, the override. Phase four, uh, Air Force One, and phase five, the nuclear warhead. And you've got to think a lot of this. The the override comes from the train bombing. Oh, sorry, no, no, sorry, I'm getting myself mixed up. The kidnapping comes, and the whole if target deviates thing. So. They get lucky that Hella is still at Richard's house when they want to grab him at Ace Clock. This, I mean, we we have a conversation, I think, at 8 p.m., just after we've learned that um, Marwan's going to do this, that that we've learned it, where Michelle, or maybe Hella, has a conversation with Keeler about staying in the air. If he lands, then what does Marwan do? He can't shoot down the president. He can't get, how does he get the nuclear football from here? So he he gets a, a lot of luck throughout this season. But um, yeah, just to sort of circle back to the nuclear football, it it, it it never fails to impress me that they make these little characters that don't mean anything beyond the one episode they're in seem important. I mean, even stuff like when they're when he when he's running the compass along the briefcase to find the transponder, it becomes exciting. So they they real really nail that part of it. One other thing we do need to talk about quickly is uh, Edgar. So Edgar throughout the first 12 episodes of this season gets integrated quite nicely. We get a good read of his personality. He's a little bit Chloe, a little bit very much not Chloe. He has the whole thing with his mother dying in the San Gabriel Island nuclear plant. He has this, you know, he's got the anxiety of going to Driscoll and to Manning and to Hella and all this. And then we come to this section of episodes and he is, I don't want to say out of character because we're still kind of learning about his character, but everything we learn before and after these set of episodes, both in this season and in next season, it feels very random. It does feel very much out of place for him. So him being highly defensive kind of makes sense, but it also kind of feels really random at times. It, it, it comes in at really strange moments. There's that power struggle that he has with Chloe that I don't think works very well. There's, I mean, he's sort of indirectly at fault for Keeler getting shot down because he has the power struggle with Chloe where he pulls rank and says that he's going to do all this stuff and then he doesn't do the hourlies, which would have led them to finally pilot and the fact that they've stolen the stealth fighter and that would lead them on to Mitch Anderson, etc. And then you make threats against Joe Prado and they bring him in. And it just, I don't know. I don't know how you feel, but I, f- I feel like Edgar in this stretch is just, they don't quite know what to do with him. 24, 24 has that uh, 
history of not knowing what to do with certain characters. Um, Are you so thinking of just, a cougar and some amnesia? <laughs> like pre- pretty pretty much 85% of, of Kim Bauer's story is just them giving her something to do just to give her something to do. Um, so in that respect, kind of not surprising. Um, but you can tell that Edgar, <clears throat> he's very eccentric. Um, like when we finally saw Chloe come back, which she was gone for a lot more episodes than I thought she was going for. Um, but when they brought Chloe back, like you could tell, like I knew that Edgar was probably glad Chloe was back, but at the same time, her being brought back was basically a reflection on him that they didn't have enough, that Michelle didn't have enough confidence that he could do what needed to be done, which ultimately turned out to be kind of accurate. Um, so he has a, He's eccentric, but he has a bit of an ego problem. Like, he's good at his job. That's, that's you know, we know that, that he's good at his job. But he has a very high opinion of himself. And I think that sometimes kind of rubs people the wrong way because of the way he expresses it. Um, and I thought during this stretch of episodes that he was kind of a little too aggressive, a little too uh, pushy. And it kind of got to the part to where it was a little bit annoying at times. Um, but at the same time, like I said, he's good at his job. So, And he he does what needs to be done for the people that, that he cares about. Like we saw that with, with him um, and Sarah. So there were, there were points where we started to kind of warm up to Edgar a little bit. But then as soon as we started to warm up to him, you know, he would <laughs> he would say something that would kind of turn us the other way a bit. But Louis Lombardi is, is, is an excellent actor, and I enjoyed Edgar for about 80, 85% of the season. But there is that 10 to 15% where I was, you know, I wanted to reach through the TV and just <laughs> slap him upside the head. But, you know, 24 does that with a lot of characters. It is literally just these sort of four or five episodes where he does feel very strange. We, at the start of the APML, where he has that mistake with, with Tony not knowing what Jack's going to do with it, and the cover and stuff, and, and that's when the doubt comes in, and that's why they bring Chloe back in. But we'd seen two hours before that he'd stopped the override, and then Tony came up to him when Driscoll left and said that you're the one person I should rely on, so come to me if you find anything. And it just feels kind of like, well, we had that whole thing of Edgar doubting himself earlier in the season with the, fir- the first tr- run at stopping the override, and then the anxiety over presenting Marianne Taylor's guilt to Driscoll and to Heller and overcoming his stuff, the stuff with his mother. It felt like we'd gone past that. And then we get into this stage and I'm not necessarily saying like it's a bad thing that we bring it back, but I do feel that we just get to hear and go, well, not really quite sure what Edgar's character is for three, four episodes. And then we get past this stretch and into next week and he's fine again. And in season five, he's fine again. So, yeah, and and like I said, that just speaks to there's there's kind of three different layers to Edgar throughout the season. Um, there's the beginning of the season where he's kind of nervous and not sure of himself, and then there's the part where up until you know he stops the reactors from melting down, where 
we see more of a confident Edgar, more of a, a sure of himself, more of a I know I can do this Edgar. Then you get to the the snappy kind of egocentric Edgar that probably has a little too high opinion of himself, but at the same time he's proven up until that point throughout the day that he can be counted on to do what needs to be done. So it's you kind of understand it, but at the same time it does get to a point where it becomes annoying, especially the way he talks to, to Chloe because he's good at his job, but Chloe's better. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, to act like that with people that can't do what you do as good as you do. But then Chloe can do what you do and do it better. So it's kind of that it kind of it kind of falls on deaf ears at that point. What a relief to have Chloe back. And of course, Edgar sorts <laughs> himself out in the final six episodes as well. Um, all is rosy. But we come to the end of 1am, uh, episode 18, and, and Jack has, they've, they've taken uh, Joe Prado prisoner, had the whole thing with uh, Amnesty Global and the lawyer, and he got released briefly so that Jack could take him on as a private citizen, breaks a few of his fingers, um, entertaining scene, and now we know where Marwan is going to be, where he is now. And we have six episodes left to try and stop Marwan. It's not going to be quite that easy. We'll talk more about that next week. Um, dun, dun, so thank dun, you for dun. listening. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, if you liked it, um, send us some feedback. It's available on the website. I don't have the email, com- the email information to hand. Sorry about that. Um, but you can contact us through all the user ways, through the Twitter and the email. Um, there's a voicemail message system on the website as well. Um, so if you do want to have your audio recorded and played on the podcast, feel free to do that. Um, but Joel, thank you very much for joining. Yes, sir. And uh, I will I will get with, uh, with Josh a little bit later once he comes back from his uh, Grand Canyon vacation. Um, because I did, you know, around the time that 24 uh, Live Another Day was coming out, I did an interview with James P. Morrison, uh, Bill Buchanan. So I know, it, I know it's in the archives. So I'm going to see if Josh can get that, get that uh, bring that out of the archives and get that, get that posted. To, uh, because it was a very good interview and uh, I've, I've communicated a little bit more with James over the last couple of months but uh, it's definitely it's definitely a very good interview and I was actually surprised that he responded to me to be honest with you <laughs> <laughs> well yeah we'll try and dig that out for the listeners to uh, accompany Bill Buchanan's introduction into 24 um, but we'll be back next week to talk about the final six episodes of season 4 I hope you join us again soon mm-hmm.